Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble falling asleep? Well, welcome. I, I hope you found the right place. This is a Game of Drones presented by Sleep With Me, the podcast that puts you to sleep. And despite that whistling noise I just made with my tongue, we're, we're the podcast that puts you to sleep. And uh, I don't know, I got tripped up there, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cover it up by with some. Hey, I'm the, I'm actually the podcast that puts you to sleep. We're the podcast that puts you to sleep. All you gotta do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. How's that for a transition, internal critic? Um, we're gonna do the rest. And what do I mean by the rest? This is my first time here, and I'm not. I don't know what I'm hearing. Uh, well, I'm gonna talk about Game of Thrones. And I'm going to try to distract you from whatever's running through your head. I'm going to try to create a safe place where you can just listen instead of having to deal with whatever's got you tossing and turning. I'm going to talk about the episode, season three, episode one. Is it episode one or are we on episode two? You know, season three, episode two. And I'm going to talk about the episode and I'm going to talk about some stuff that interested me, which might include stuff like bunions. So by the time I get to that, hopefully the part of you that's been tossing and turning will be listening, but you'll be sound asleep. That's why we're here. I know it sounds strange. We're a podcast to put you to sleep by distracting you. I talk in a soothing, dulling, lulling, possibly boring manner. And, you know, I go on tangents to distract you from whatever's running through your brain. So give it a shot. If you don't like Game of Drones episodes... Uh, we have non-Game of Thrones stuff on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But I'm glad you're here. I hope you, I hope you fall asleep. We're on the web, www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Game of Drones episodes, shout out to the general at game slash drones, which is just, I just said something fast, slash drones is the key. Uh, if you need to get hold of me, it's feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com by email. You can comment on the website. You can get me on Twitter, at Dearest Scooter. I also try to retweet sleep-related articles there. You can get a hold of me on Facebook if you prefer that. Uh, Facebook's where I put the bloopers. Usually I sing. I was just singing a Christmas carol, believe it or not, before I started recording. Christmas is about, what, 40, 45 days ago. So, and I'm not the most, probably more like 48 days ago, and I'm not exactly a bowl of Christmas cheer during the season. But for some reason, if I sing a Christmas carol, I'll temporarily be cheerful while I'm singing it. Maybe not. Maybe I think I was picking on myself, actually. That's the bloopers that's on Facebook. You know, I'm on Reddit sometimes. If if you're only on Reddit, you know, maybe inconsistently on there too so that's it i'm glad you're here and i hope i help you fall asleep uh oh this prayer goes out to the old gods and the new this prayer goes out to the crone and the rest of the gods to still in a world i left behind a little prayer to occupy your time this prayer goes out to the crone, the miller, the smith, Barky, and the jester. A prayer. Hey, gods, it's me, uh, praying in gratitude. And, I know I did that gimmick before, 
But I did it again just because I was feeling like this prayer goes out to you guys. This prayer of gratitude, thankfulness for all the support that, again, by some um, seeming inaction on your parts. But, you know, that's what they, that's what I think they came up with that word miracle. Uh, all these human beings help me out and support me when I need it, when I'm feeling down or when I'm feeling, you know, up, when, you know, too up which makes me feel down because I'm like, oh, boy, this is when I fall off the top of the slide again. And anyway, um, so I'm gratitude, you guys, um, and thankfulness. I want to start out with our thanking uh, Chris Posty Post or Sim Posty Poo. I don't know if you're listening to this. He's got a, a podcast over at Sounds Like an Earful.com. Hopefully Colleen's listening to this. Probably not. That's his uh, Partner in crime, I would say, no, gods, because they're not criminals. They're lovely Canadian people. And I want to thank him because he does our music, and hopefully we're going to be cooking up something soon together. I want to thank Scott and Jennifer for our lovely art. I want to thank the Lord and Lady for watching over this podcast with, uh, you know, scepters and uh, crowns and bejeweled and metaphorically and... Um, Hopefully, non-metaphorically, they, they live in a bed of jewels and gold. Not not current, you know, one day. I want to thank the uh, Nick Van Corfee, Nam 3, the defrenestrator for watching over the Lord and Lady. You know, we don't care about jewels. We care about our rights to change royalty if we needed to. I want to thank uh, everyone else out there. So, Tone, I haven't heard from you, buddy. I want to make sure you're all right. Sing, sing me, tweet me, tweet me, you know, sing, say hi. I'm just saying hi to the silver tone. And uh, new folks, well, Harrison, funder from down under. How you doing, buddy? And uh, I reach out to him. I want to thank new people too, Haley, uh, for saying hi. Karma King Alex. Uh, these aren't all new people. Karma King Alex is new, I think. Carrie, a.k.a. Roxanne, I'll win, I'll win, I'll win, maybe. Uh, thank you for recommending, you know, helping, you know, long listener. Tisha uh, said that um, the guy, Agatha Christie's uh, hero, is pronounced Poirot, 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 which I've been doing in my spare time. I think it's easier for me to say French words like whisper, Poirot. Poirot is the hero. I forgot. Is it Hercule though? I didn't. I didn't ask that. Poirot. Uh, I want to say a shout out to Jay Allen, aka Tech OKC, aka Tech Knock is what I call him in my head because H, you know, looks like an N sometimes when it goes through my gray matter. U.S. WhoCast gave us a review, which is a, a podcast about Doctor Who that I've not checked out. God, and I want to thank uh, who, the who, U.S. Who cast. Um, and I also want to thank God, who wouldn't believe this mess up band, VH, uh, thanked us, you know, wrote a nice review on the Game of Drones feed, and they thanked him on a non-Game of Drones podcast, so I'm thanking him again. I want to have some YouTube listeners, Samuel M. and Ashley W. separately. Uh, they didn't, you know, thank you both. 
I want to uh, apologize to Sarah. Um, I realized that she was supposed to have a dream about Buster Douglas, not Michael Keaton or Michael Douglas or Buster Keaton. It was Buster Douglas. Experiment I'm doing with uh, the the, uh, ticker tape. Well, ticker tape's doing it independently. I just, for legal purposes, I got to take the blame, the ticker tape told me. And was making sending broad dream broadcasts, so that was a, a mix up. And I was had a Bethany. Bethany, I checked your Twitter account, and you don't have a website anymore. But I know Bethany's a gluten free writer about a gluten free recipes. So if you have that, can I send it my way? Matt from Obsessive Viewer Podcast, Barky. They talk about movies, TV shows, viewing things. Now that you're coming into the Earth world, you know you might want to check into that, Barks. Another podcaster, Tyler over at For the Love of Podcasts, and uh, I'll, I'll include both those guys uh, in the show notes. Uh, Tyler reached out, and hopefully me and Tyler are going to be talking soon about some stuff. I want to thank iTunes Reviews. I want to thank Jeff Q, who said this podcast was a fantastic idea, and I never heard more than 30 minutes of it. Thank you, Jeff Q. Jeff Q., I want to thank you, and you made it easy for me to say that because it rhymes. And not everybody, you know, you don't have to, but also I want to thank Mel554 for saying a wonderful podcast, really helpful. And Mel554 rhymes with this podcast as a bore, even though you didn't put this that Mel said she loves this guy or he. Um, so thank you. I want to thank you both. I want to thank everyone else, guys, especially I want to thank you guys because I know I just picture you guys, you know, eating grapes, getting fed by humans or, you know, centaurs, centaurs, horsemen. Crone, you guys got any horsemen up there? Do you have any Norsemen? Or uh, um, keep away from especially the uh, centaurs or whatever. I hear they're very sexual, so if you can keep those guys away from the maiden. Um, well, never mind. Making, you know, go for it. Well, you know, I don't, you know, what was it going to bother me one, one bit at all? Not one, you know, you know, not at all. Not going to bother me at all. There's probably hair, you know, those horse hairs are, I mean, just warning you, one of you swallow one of those tail hairs. This, you know, you be, so go, go ahead, do what you wish, you know, whatever. So that's it, gods. I'm here. Crone, sweet, sweet crone. Miller Smith, Barky, Jester. I'm here in Earth, planet Earth. State of California, United States is the country. Uh, you know, zip code, I'm not giving that out, but you know you know what gods. The zip code is a T-H-Y-A-N-K-Y-O-U. An I-O-U, I-O-U. I'm sending you an I-O-U. A big heart of uh, big, th- you know, Big bowl of thank yous, gods. Grape, thank you. know, grape, round grapes that I could just put in your mouth that I have thank you inside them. Some, you know, that, so thanks, gods. I, you know, I got to get the I got a whole podcast to do here. So, yeah, I'll talk to you at the end of the podcast, okay? Well, well all right, everybody. It's like uh, 10 weeks approximately from the Game of, Game of Thrones Season 5 premiere. So that's exciting. And we're premiering season three, you know, in a perfect dreamlike order. 
before season five starts, we're going to catch up on season three. Just, you know, happenstance of time. But we are we covered season four in the back episodes. If you need help finding them, just email me. Feedback at sleepingmoviepodcast.com. I think you need that in the email. We're going to be talking about season three. Valar Dolhares, I think is how you say it. Now, I got I to tell you straight up. That uh, you should do your if, and this is sometimes I say this, I always mean it, but this time, do yourself a huge, huge favor. And I have the DVDs; I took them out from my local library. But do yourself a huge favor if you do have HBO Go, if, if uh, Game of Thrones is on your uh, on demand, your local library, or you know you may have a video place still open, or I don't know where you probably get it buying an iTunes. Watch this episode because this has some of the greatest moments. This episode has some of the greatest moments of uh, interpersonal relations. It, it just has three of the pinnacle scenes for me of Game of Thrones. And I, I, I was like, when were those? And they, they all happen to be in this one episode. So it's, we're in for a treat. Uh, if, if you, you know, or the episode's a treat. I'm more of like a, a person coming, oh, you're having some candy there. I'm that guy. Oh, eating some candy. What do you got there, uh, Peanut? Did you know that there's – so the, the I'm getting meta, I think, there. But I don't even know. I'm not sure if that's proper use of meta. But um, great episode. So let's get to the episode discussion instead of talking about M&Ms. So the episode opens with black. The screen's black. And there's these sounds of battle going on, which is very disorienting because it's black. And you're like, wait a second, my TV broken? What's happening? Is this a battle? Why did it start in a battle? What's happening? And then so, and then you see Sam running, and then he uh, has a run in with a couple things, and then um, John's wolf saves him, and then Mormont comes and say, double saves him, and then Mormont's like, "Sam, tell me you you set those ravens free. Tell me you didn't pull a Sam, and uh, just think about Gilly, and uh, you know get scared." He says, "Oh well, I did," and he says, "We have to get back to the wall and warn them." Or everyone you've ever known will be dead. Not not exactly an uplifting thing to say. And then season three starts. And I think, well, geez, I already forgot. I think they, every season they've done this, they have a little pre-roll on episode one before they do the uh, open. And then they do the uh, opening credits. And we have John going into Mance, Raider, Mance Raider's camp. Mance, I'll say his name a few different times the wrong way. He sees a giant. He's with a greet and the uh, captain of bones or whatever. He says, "She says, oh, first time you've seen a giant. Uh, don't stare. They're shy." And then these kind of people are yelling at him. It's like a parade with the crow. And then someone says, uh, "In your hearts, all you crows want to find freedom, or something like that. Fly free. In your hearts, all you crows want to fly free." I think. And then uh, I think it's a greet. Says, "Don't look so grim, John Snow." And then he goes into this tent, and the, the, this guy's like, what do we want with the baby crow? And John thinks this guy's the leader. He kneels, and the, his big, this big red-headed guy. And he's like, this guy, the guy's like, oh, no, no, I'm the one in charge. And he's like, by the way, we don't kneel for anyone out here beyond the wall. That giant guy, his name, he introduces this Tormund Giant's Bone. And then it becomes like a little bit of a job interview. He says, hey, why, why do you want to, John says, I don't want to join up with you guys. I don't, I'm not into the crows. 
And this Mance guy, you can tell he's sharp, uh, sharp kettle. Looks a little bit like Alan Rickman. I think we've talked about that. He says, uh, well, what do you want? You know, you, you know, pitch yourself. And he says, I want to be free. The guy goes, okay, we might as well take you out. I don't buy that. And he says, no, I think you want to be a hero. And he says, why are you really here? And he says, well, the stuff I saw at Caster's Creep is not uh, moral or ethical. And it's not going to uh, – he goes, I want to fight for the side that fights for the living. And then we see – this actually wasn't one of the scenes I was talking about, but you see in John's face, he's like face-to-face -face with Mance, and he says, you know, he doesn't say anything. But you're like, well, John just grew up in this uh, four seconds when he – you know, and a very good job interview skills to be able to, like, say, well, that's not really what we're looking for. He said, well, let me, you know – let me re 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 rephrase the question back at you and give you some real, uh, you know, juice here. And he gives him the juice he's looking for. Then we got Bron. The second time this has happened to poor Bron, where he's about to uh, have some sweet loving. And someone shows up and says, uh, last time it was the Battle of Blackwater Bay. This time it's, uh, uh, what's it, Podrick. And Podrick says, oh, so Bron, you got to go. And then we have a scene with Tyrion by himself at first, and Cersei's knocking on his door. Tyrion's looking in the mirror. He says, like, will you let me in? He's he's obviously afraid and, and afraid of being seen. And he, she's like, you know, if, if, if I wanted to kill you, you think I'd let a door stop me, a wooden door? And then they, she goes in, and this is one of the scenes, folks, so I don't even really want to read too much of the dialogue too much of the dial. I don't want to read too much of the dial because you should do just watch two wonderful act an actor and an actress at their best. Uh, but you know they're talking about him and she he she says uh, she's picking on his face and he's like you know it wasn't a rebel who tried to kill me. And, and then we Cersei gets in there and while they're going back and forth we get the sense like uh, we see a little bit through her veneer of confidence and she says well what do you really want from dad what are you planning she gets a little passive aggressive. She's like, what are you going to tell Dad? And he's like, why do you care? Why are you so nervous? And she's like, well, I gotta expect you to slander me. And he's like, it's not slander if it's true. She's like, what's the truth? What are you, like, what, you're going to tell on me? And then she says, you're a clever man, but not as half as clever as you think you are. And he says, that still makes me more clever than you. But just, you just watch the scene. Trust me, there's so much more gold there. Wonderful. I, I don't even, I was breathless watching it. And then you have Bron shows up at the door and you get a little comic, get a chance to breathe from that. And he starts picking on the, he's like, oh, who are these two idiots? He says, uh, he says, sir, something. And sir, I think he says, sir, who's it? Who cares? And then he's like, sir, Bron of the Blackwater. And then they're like, oh no. And then he's kind of showing down with, it's Marin Trout and some other dude. And then the next scene's on the ramparts. It's Bronn and Tyrion walking. He says, as much as I appreciate a walk in the sunshine, my lordship, he says, he's, you know, you you got to give me some money here. And it's, Tyrion's like, what are you, you're not here. Is he? He's like, well, now I have a taste for the finer things. And they kind of talk about money and friendship and what the future holds for both of them. Next thing you know, we got a blind Sir Davos, sunblind, sunburned. And he's out on this rock. He finally gets a ship, and they, and they find him, and they come save him. 
And they get there, and it's where you see Sir Davos. They're like, who, who, who are you? And he's like, well, you know, I crashed during the, the which king do you serve? And it takes uh, Davos about five seconds of a, a Mississippi. It's not one, two, three, four, five. He's a, he looks over the ship. He says, uh, the one true thing. He's like the one true king, Stannis. And I don't know how he figured that out, but it's why I love Sir Davos. Then we got him with the pirate uh, Salador San or whatever his name is. And he was like, I'm sorry about your son. You were a good father. Davos like, if I was a good father, my son would still be alive. And then the Salador's like, uh, you know, Stannis is a broken man. He sees no one but the red woman. He, she's burning men as uh, anyone who speaks against her. And, you know, he's like, Davos is like, well, we got to get in there. And he goes, I'm a pirate. You're a smuggler. We're servants of darkness. What do you think she's going to do to us? And he goes, I have to stop her. Please, you know, do me this favor. And we had uh, some horses going by, and you got a scene with Rob and Roose Bolton, and they're talking about the mountain, they're approaching Heron Hall, and Rob's like, there's no one here, there's not going to be a fight. I'd love a fight, but I don't think we're going to get one. And then you see how uh, the mountain left Heron Hall in total slaughter state, horrible. And Rob's like, lock my mom up, this is a, this is a you know, her fault. And another little nugget of a scene, this guy starts coughing. He kind of looks like a maester. He, he comes, opens his eyes, they're like, hey, buddy, hey, buddy. He's, they say, who are you? He says, Kyburn. And somebody says, you're lucky to be alive. And he just squeaks out, lucky. And then we have scene number two of, uh, I don't know how you can up these, these uh, scenes, but you have Tywin writing letters and then Tyrion's just sitting there. Oh, my, this, I, I don't even want to talk about this, how good this scene, just watch it. He's writing letters. I don't, I don't even know if I can talk. He, there's a couple of things. He's ignoring Tywin. And then Tywin says, the badge looks good on you. And then blah, blah, blah. He says, you brought a whore into my bed. Tyrion says, I, be, I bled in the mud for our family. And uh, then you... Trundle me off to some dark little cell. I just ask him for some bloody gratitude. And then Tywin basically says, jugglers and singers require applause. Tell me what you want. Tyrion's like, I want Casterly Rock. I want my birthright. And Tywin says, I'd I'd let myself be consumed by maggots first, is what he says to his son. And a lot worse than that. And it's just a heartbreaking it's all about heartbreaking, but it's just so much is, wow. You, you, I, you, and that takes place around 30 minutes into the show, if you want to go straight to that. Probably one of the greatest scenes between that last scene with Cersei and this scene. Two of the greatest scenes, in my opinion, in the history of the show. Subtle. You, If, if you're any into any writing or... I mean, I guess there's subtext there. The, the last scene we'll talk about is Subtext City. But it's like, I, it, oof, I don't know. I remember seeing these scenes. I couldn't believe. Like when you're doing stuff like trying to be creative or tell stories and then you just see something that is so good you almost can't believe it. That's my reaction to the, these these scenes. And the third one coming up here. That's just like almost beyond comprehension that you could create something this wonderful.
Then we have uh, Sansa and Shay. They're watching ships. They're playing a little game. Guess where the ship's from. Guess where it's going. Guess what's on it. Sansa seems a little fixated on the rules. And they said, well, well the, the truth, they're talking about truth as well. Second time, I think, this episode. Sansa's like, the truth is always terrible or boring. Right on cue, Bayless shows up. Says, hey, I saw your mother and your sister. Was that the truth? Well, kind of. Is, is that the terrible truth or the boring truth? And he says, I'm waiting word on an assignment that will take me far away from the capital. Meanwhile, in the background, Roz and Shay are having their own conversation. And Shay's like a little bit dicey. Roz is like, I know you're one of, you know, we're, we're sisters of the uh, oldest profession. It's not easy for us girls. And people like us have to dig ourselves out of where we got started. And then she says to Shay, Roz says, watch out for her. Shay says, I always do. And she says, with him. Then we get a dragon at sea fishing and cooking its own meals. And it's uh, uh, Jorah and Khaleesi says, oh, they're growing fast. She says, not fast enough. I need an army. And Jorah says, it's too beautiful a day to argue. And then right on cue, you hear uh, um, uh, one, of the, one of the Dothraki throwing up. And she's like, you know, he's like, look at this. And she's like, this is the first Dothraki on the ship. Uh, this is the first Dothraki ever to go to sea. And she's talking about, well, and he says, you'll be the first Kalasar when you prove yourself strong. And then we have Davos's return to Dragonstone. He rolls into the map room and he's like, hey, your grace, it's me. And Davos, uh, Stannis is like, oh, I heard you were dead. And Davos, he's such a, he's so Davos. He's like, oh, I had hoped we could, we could uh, speak alone. And Stannis is like, we are alone. And this isn't one of the scenes I was talking about, but this is great, great dialogue. He says, uh, you know, what are you doing with, uh, you know, this lady's burning people. And she says, well, how would you deal with infidels, uh, Sir Davos? And this is an important thing to remember, a good life lesson. He says, I do not judge people for the gods they serve. If I did, I would have thrown you into the sea before you even set foot on Dragonstone. Oh, and then she just now she says she just destroys him. She says, "Oh well, you know I couldn't totally like a we all grew up with kids like this." She's like, "Well, I wasn't there to ruin you know I wasn't there to win the battle because you wouldn't let me go." So yeah, you lost the battle because I wasn't there to win it. So you know it's not my fault; it's your fault. And she says, "Don't don't despair, Sir Davos." And then he goes crazy, and Stannis like throw him in the dungeon. Then we have Joff. I uh, know a little one of those little uh, mini RVs that they carry around, and he's sniffing one of those perfumed hankies like a big wuss. And they stop in the middle of the neighborhood. Mar- uh, Marjorie's in another one. She gets out. There's a bones and stars symbol on the wall that I couldn't figure out, um, but where she goes in, which I mean, it's an orphanage. So I'm like, does I mean orphanage? And they're, they're not just orphans; they're war orphans, it seems. And she brings them gifts and sits with them and kind of showers some of them with affection and attention. 
And she talks about, we're going to feed you them and clothe them and house them. And, you know, anything you need, let me know. And Jaffa, he, he seems afraid, but he also seems a little bit titillated by the whole thing. Like something about her confidence and her genuineness. I don't know. He's like, huh, what is this? And, of course, her, you know, neckline, as I've talked about, that plunging neckline helps. And then we have big scene number three, Subtext City. It's a dinner party. We got Cersei, we got Joff, we got Marjorie, and we got Loris. And this is just, oh, my goodness, what? Uh, you, should, you should just, uh, you know, first Cersei's comment about Marjorie's dress, and she's kind of deflecting it. And then they talk about her stopping in Flea Bottom. And then Joff suddenly is like, wait a second, this other woman is usurping my mother's power, kind of. And he says, my mother's always had a penchant for drama. And then she says, well, we can't always have the king's bravery, can we? And then another great line is, I'm, he says, Mom, I'm sure she knows what she's doing. And so she says, I'm sure she does. Then we're with the Khaleesi, and she meets these, like, super soldiers who are eunuchs. And they're they're slaves, and they live this terrible life with these terrible uh, military masters. Also, with the most beautiful interpreter that's ever existed. And there's a lot of comedy in this. This is tragedy and comedy meets because uh, there's like this all this the the salesman for the soldiers is just a jerk, and there's all this uh, interpretation mix up. There's all these jokes in the interpretation. And he says, uh, you know, they fear nothing. Then Jorah says something, and he says, tell him, tell the old man he smells of piss. And she says, really? The interpreter, he says, no, not really. And he says, these people are nameless. He almost makes them seem like they're soulless, like they've almost stolen these men's souls. And they have 8,000 soldiers and Khaleesi's kind of like trying to, she's like, well, I'm going to think about it. He's like, well, just like a used car salesman. He's like, well, I got other buyers coming, so make make a decision quick. And then we get a big d- debate that's going to move our story forward further. Our Khaleesi, at least, with his, uh, George says, these are a means to an end. And Khaleesi's like, I'm not comfortable with this. You know, this this is wrong. And means to, well, you know, what is the means to an end? I don't know, you know, I don't know about that. And Joris says, who, who, you know, even if it's wrong, aren't you the better wrong? So even a means to an end, he says, well, what's worse? Which wrong is worse? And Khaleesi is still, and this is where you get a leader, a transcendent leader, possibly, I don't know. But uh, she says, I don't know, no. You know, maybe there's another way. And they have the, let's go for a walk and figure this out in the marketplace. And then there's this little girl and this man in this kind of cape. And we're like, "Uh uh-oh, tension music, what's happening? And then we realize the little girl is a warlock in disguise. She tries to trick the Khaleesi, the guy in the cape. And the hood shows up and takes out the trap. And it's like, all of a sudden, it's like, wait a second, that's uh, Barristan Selmy from uh, season one and two, or at least season one. And Sir George, Khaleesi's like, who is this dude? He's like the best, you know, fighter pretty much in the world. And, you know, possibly, you know, competition for me, you know, being in the friend zone, but, you know, getting out of the friend zone, even though he's even older than me. 
you know, the sexual father figure that I've tried to become for you. And then he, you know, Salmi's like, Sir Barrison gets down. He's like, I'm here for forgiveness because I was supposed to be watching your parents. Because he's, he gets back, gets down and begs for forgiveness because he's like, I, you know, I was supposed to protect your family. I have let them down. So I'm here to serve you. You know, I apologize. I, I've made some wrongs. I'm here to right them. And then you get a shot of Jorah's face and he's like, oh boy, no, 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 I don't like this. And then that's that's the end of the episode. So so in summary, just watch this episode, please, please do. do. It is just, if you think your family's crazy and you're like, man, I hate my aunt or my, if you have a ranty who's even a serious ranter or whatever, watch this and you'll be like, well, you know, Tywin's not your dad. Or Cersei's not your mom or your sister. Or, yeah, not who I, you know, pretty nice to have Loras or Marjorie for a sibling, it seems like. But, uh, you know, that's in, in the, you know, that's in the reach that's far, far away. So that's it. Uh, here's some of the stuff we're probably going to talk about tonight. Some quick stuff. We're going to talk about what does Valor Doris mean. We're going to cover the Raven. Uh, who's Tormund, Giant's Bone, Coitus Interruptus, Sir Marin, Sir Mandarin, uh, Walks in Vitamin D, Sunscreen, Saladar San. We're going to cover World War Orphans. We'll hear from Sir Tommen. And we should, you know, make some prayers, all right? I'm glad you're here. All right, let's run through some of this uh, Game of Thrones uh, people. In, uh, so Valar, Valar Doharis. Uh, means all men must serve in High Valerian. It is the traditional response to the greeting Valar Morgulis, which was how we ended last season with uh, Arya being Arya being told uh, with uh, which was how we ended last season with Arya being told uh, Valar Morgulis. Say it again, Valar Morgulis. Okay, Tormund, T O R M U N D. Uh, Tormund uh, is famous this episode for saying plenty of men tried to put their swords through my heart and there's plenty of little skeletons buried in the woods. Tormund also called often, and all these are from the Game of Thrones wiki. Uh, Tormund, also called, often called Tormund Giant's Bane, is a major character in Game of Thrones. He first appeared in the third season. He's a renowned leader and raider among the free folk. And second in command behind Mance Raider. 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 Yeah, second in command behind Mance Raider. He is played by Christopher Hivju. H I V J U. Biography Tormund is a trusted leader in his own right of a large warband of wildlings. He has joined his forces to those of the King Beyond the Wall, Mance Raider and now functions as one of Mance's most trusted lieutenants. He boasts of having bedded a she-bear, which he calls Sheila. That's my sister's name. Agreed insists that everyone knows he just made this story up. So that's Tormund. Uh, Marin Trant, Trant, who's uh, one one of the most hated people. I'm sure I've mentioned before. He's a recurring character in the first, second, and third seasons of Game of Thrones so far. He's played by Ian Beatty and debuts in the pointy end. Sir Marin Trent 
is a knight of the King's Guard under King Robert Baratheon and subsequent kings and and Joffrey and King Joffrey. Sir Marin Trant is a member of House Trant, a vassal house to House Baratheon. He becomes a knight of the King's Guard under Robert. After Robert's rebellion, he's a successful tourney knight. Though Sandor Clegane is scornful of Trant's skills, remarking that a boy whore with any sword could beat three Marentrants. He takes pride in his status as a king, knight of the King's Guard, even though he, retun, retun, even though he retun, routinely follows orders which break a knight's sworn duty to defend the weak and innocent without hesitance or question. So that's Sir Marentrant. Mandon Moore was the guy that tried to take out uh, Tyrion at the uh, Battle of Blackwater. Sir Mandon Moore is a recurring character in the first season and the second season. He is initially played by an unidentified extra and is first identified in The Prince of Winterfell. The role was recast for the episode Blackwater, with guest star James Duran taking over. Sir Mandon Moore is a member of the King's Guard and defends King Robert and defends King Geoffrey Baratheon as he defended King Robert Baratheon before him. Sir Mandon is a member of House Moore, a noble house from the Vale. From the Vale, really? Jeez. Salador San is a recurring character in Game of Thrones. He's played by guest star Lucian Masa Mati. M S A Mati. Masa Mati. And debuts in the Nightlands. Salador San is a pirate lord in Selsail, commanding a fleet of sh- 30 ships. He's recruited to King Stannis Baratheon's cause. Salador San is a pirate lord from Lys, though a native of the Summer Isles. He commands a th- f- fleet of 30 ships that frequently prey on merchant ships traveling between Westeros and the free cities to the east. Sometimes in the pursuit of extra wealth, he ships, shifts from Shits. Sometimes in the pursuit of extra wealth, he shifts from pure piracy to being a sell sale, hiring out the services of his ships and crews to the highest bidder to act as mercenaries in various conflicts. So that's Salador San. I mean, talk about a bad ass pirate. To be able to command 30 ships of pirates, he's got to be a pretty uh, tough customer and a good leader, I, I would say. Um,. We've talked about uh, ravens before, and Sam was supposed to set the ravens free. And we'll talk about—we've talked about Edgar Allan Poe before. We'll talk about him again, and we'll talk about the poem The Raven again. But I wanted to just read oh, at least a little bit of The Raven, if not all of it, because I love Poe and I love The Raven. But I, I, I don't perform poetry, so I'm just going to do my—but it's supposed to be boring anyway, so who cares? And, if, and Mr. Poe, if you care— uh, I'm sorry, you know, once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of some one gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, I distinctly remember it was the bleak December." and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books a sure cease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. 
and the silken sad uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, that it is and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was nabbing, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, nothing more. Deep into that darkness, peering long, I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming, dreams no mortal ever dreamed to dream before. The silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore? This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore, merely this and nothing more. Back into the chamber, turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard the tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then where that is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obsolescence made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with a mane of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of its countenance at war, through thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven, wandering from nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on night's Platonian shore, quoth the raven nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing birds above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculpted bust above his chamber door, with such name as nevermore. But the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word as if its soul in that one word he did outpour, nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till scarcely more than muttered. Other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by a reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master whose unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope, that melancholy burden hope, of never, never more. But the raven still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of the bird and bustin' door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking, what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, ominous bird of yore, meant in croaking, never more. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl 
whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight glowed o'er, but whose velvet violet lining was the lamplight glowing o'er. She shall press on nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from some unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose wall, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tuft floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee by these angels, he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and nepenthe thee from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quote the raven, nevermore. Prophet said, I think of evil, prophet still of bird or devil, whether tempter sent or tempest, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert island land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore. Is there, is there bomb in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quote the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still of bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell the soul with sorrow laden within the distance aiden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden who the angels name Lenore, quote the raven nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting, Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as token of that lie thou soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out thy heart and take thy form from off my door. Quote the raven, nevermore. And if the raven never fitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him, streaming, throws his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. <sighs> well, whew, so that was a little bit of a raven by Edgar Allan Poe. If that didn't put you to sleep, then, uh, you know, you're probably an English major. All right, so uh, next up is, uh, so Bron has had twice where he's been, uh, where he, where Bron's been about to have coitus sex and it's been interrupted. So I think Val's like, oh, coitus interruptus. Oh, let me look up a little bit about that. So, you know, the, the kids shouldn't be listening to this podcast, but, you know, you definitely kids can't be listening to this part. Okay, so the first place I looked was Go Ask Alice, our buddies over at uh, Columbia, University of Columbia.edu. And this is originally published December 1st, 1994, last updated and reviewed December 19th, 2008. And this says, Alice, the man I'm having a relationship with seems to prefer coitus interruptus. That is, during intercourse, he will hold out until I... Uh, come and then withdraw and then ask, well, I'm turning right here, then ask me to either masturbate him or masturbate himself until he comes. 
First, it does not bother me, since he was considerate of my orgasm, and every guy has his own peculiarity. I guess, nevertheless, I now feel unfulfilled in the intercourse without those final thrusts. It is a little bit embarrassing for me to talk about for you. Although communication is the key, any suggestions on how to broach the topic? Signed, unfulfilled sex. Okay, Mom, you better... I hope you're not listening. I hope you're asleep. You too, crone. Uh, Dear unfulfilled sex, as you give no information about your chosen birth control method, it is difficult to determine if your partner is employing coitus interruptus to prevent pregnancy or for some other reason. Some men are concerned about getting their partner pregnant, even if an effective contraceptive method is being used and they withdraw before ejaculating to avoid this possibility. Withdrawal, however, is not an adequate method of birth control. Pre-ejaculate may contain viable sperm that lead to contraception. The other partner, or the other possibility is your partner may find that he has a more satisfying orgasm through masturbation. It may be what he is used to as feeling good and what brings him to orgasm easily. You're right in saying the only way to find out what's going on for him is to talk to him. Assuming you are taking effective precautions regarding birth control and STIs, sexually transmitted infections, you can try to think about positive ways to approach your partner rather than the old, quotes, unfulfilled line. Examples might be, Would you like me to try going down on you? How about coming inside of me? It, re- it makes me really horny to think about it. Question mark. I'm waiting for the day you'll come inside me. It's so special. These questions may provide him with the opportunity. I hope somebody, somebody tell me Tom is not listening to this. Oh, man, pounce, please. I lost my place. These questions may provide him with the opportunity to let you know what's going on for him and then how you can work it out together. As to setting... It's best not to do it while you're in the middle of passionate lovemaking or even right afterwards. In addition to ruining the moment. Sounds like a guy wrote this with that. There's a possibility that your partner could get defensive. Your best bet would be to start the conversation at a neutral moment over dinner, coffee, or when waking up in the morning, when taking a walk, whenever, whatever you normally do together. Try to make it light. Be yourself and use your own language to express your desires and elicit dialogue. If you're both able to hold the conversation successfully, it should be the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Good luck, Alice. Okay, I didn't read that ahead of time, so sorry if that was embarrassing to anybody. Um, uh, let's more, learn more about like the effectiveness of uh, coitus interrupt. This is from Mayo, Mayo Clinic. Uh, the definition the withdrawal method of contraception known as coitus interrupt is the practice of withdrawing the penis from the vagina before ejaculation to prevent pregnancy. This withdrawal method helps prevent sperm from entering the vagina. This is all very medical. Uh, using the withdrawal method for birth control requires self-control. Even then, the w- method, even then, the withdrawal method as typically used, isn't an especially effective form of birth control. Sperm may enter the vagina if withdrawal is in prime topically or pre-ejaculation fluid contains sperm. The withdrawal method doesn't offer protection for STIs. 
Uh, it has several benefits. It's free and readily available. It has no side effects. doesn't require a fitting or prescription. Some couples choose to use a withdrawal method because they don't want to use other contraceptive methods. Risks. Using the withdrawal method for pregnancy doesn't pose any direct risks, but it doesn't offer protection from sexually transmitted diseases. It requires considerable self-control to interrupt coitus at the peak of excitement, and some couples feel that the withdrawal disrupts sexual pleasure, as we just saw. Also, some men may have difficulty predicting when they will ejaculate. As many as 22 out of 100 women who practice a withdrawal method for one year will get pregnant. Uh, to use the withdrawal method properly, time the withdrawal, obviously, take precautions before having sex again. Over at Planned Parenthood, let's see if it has anything else. How effective is withdrawal? Uh, according to Planned Parenthood, of every 100 women whose partners use withdrawal, four will become pregnant each year if they always do it correctly. Uh, out of 100 women whose partners use withdrawal, 27 will become pregnant if they don't always use do it correctly. So 27% chance if, if your guy's not a, a master of um, control. Now, one thing I'll tell you about the effectiveness rates, one, it doesn't prevent STIs. You know, one thing I'll tell you uh, is that it's 100% effective for somebody that's telling you about it. Uh, you know, like your friend or your friend's cousin. Oh, I mean, I got a friend, I'm not even joking, who that's what they use. He's in a committed relationship. And he's like, oh, we've been together for whatever, 10 years. It's the only thing we've ever used. But it's not, it only works for somebody that's not you. That's all I can tell you. And that's the magic of the, the um, coitus interruptus method is that it's uh, incredibly effective for someone else that you know that tells you about it. But believe me, don't. as soon as you start trying it out, be prepared to deal with the uh, 27, per, you know, because uh, as I've said many a time, uh, you know, us guys, we're at, you know, you know, we're not that, you know, we're, we're, I don't know. Let's move on. Uh, another th- one thing Bron said is him and uh, Tyrion, they were going for a walk. So Tyrion and Bron were going for a walk. He said, it's a lovely day for a walk, you know, your lordship, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. What do you want? Made me think, okay, winter, vitamin, we need vitamin D, people walking in the sun. Well, let me find out more about that. So the Arthritis uh, Foundation has an article called The Benefits of Winter Walking by Denise Lynn Mann. Walking in the outdoors in the winter keeps your bones strong, improves your mood, and burns calories from the article. Just because the trees are bare and there's a chill in the air doesn't mean you have to forego your daily walks outside for the dreaded treadmill. Anything but. In fact, outdoor walking during the winter may have surprising benefits for people with arthritis. Or the general public, I'm adding that. Walking in the winter air can keep bones strong. Like bears, people tend to hibernate during the winter. And as a result, get too little sunlight, explains Lynn Millar, Ph.D., a physical therapist and professor at Andrews University in Berrien Springs, Michigan. That's too bad for bones. Sun exposure triggers vitamin D production in the skin, and the bones need the sunshine vitamin to make the body absorb bone-strengthening calcium properly. Not getting outside during the winter months slows down production and decreases the body's store of vitamin D. 
Vitamin D is important for keeping the bones strong. It's particularly important for people with arthritis who take corticosteroids because they have an increased risk of brittle bones, says Millar. Going for a winter walk and getting 15 minutes of sun exposure on your hands and face two to three times a week should should suffice for getting enough sun for vitamin D production. Uh, other mood, other uh, benefits, Bron improves your mood. Sunlight and just being outdoors can do wonders for lifting your mood, says Millar. Spending time with friends walking can have positive effects on your mood and dis- decrease pain. And the University of Washington in Seattle study of 112 women aged 19 to 78 shows that women who took a brisk outdoor walk at 20 minutes had a better mood, higher self-esteem, and an improved sense of well-being at the end of an eight-week study. Winter walking could provide an effective, easy-to-stick-with therapy for mild to moderate depression, say the researchers, especially those who experience side effects from prescription treatment options. Winter walking could provide an effective, easy-to-stick-with therapy for mild to moderate depression, say the researchers, especially those who experience side effects from prescription treatment options. Motivate, you're more likely to complete a workout on a walking route if you walk outdoors simply because you need to return home or to your car, says Millar. On a treadmill, however, you you can hit stop as soon as boredom strikes. Burn calories outdoor walking through the park or around a neighborhood on a cold day won't burn any more calories than walking on a warm summer day. But walking in the snow will. What are you, nuts? You expend more energy because it's harder to move your feet in the snow and you lift your legs a little higher, she explains. Okay, and then, um, so that's just a little bit about uh, vitamin D. So it sounds like, from what I read, 15 to 20 minutes will get you your vitamin D that you need. Sir Davos had pretty nasty sunburn in this episode, and so I was like, okay, sunscreen. It seems like there's always uh, a little bit of controversy around sunscreen. How much should you be putting on? Uh, which which is so I looked up. I was like, didn't I, uh, what's in these sunscreens and what's not? So I went over to Environmental Working Group. That's ewg.org. And I found this article, The Trouble with Sunscreen Chemicals. To give you guys a heads up, uh, so this is from EWG.org, Environmental Working Group, Sun Safety. Trouble with sunscreen chemicals. Active ingredients in sunscreens come from two forms, mineral and chemical filters. Each uses a different mechanism for protecting skin and maintaining stability in sunlight. Each may pose hazards to human health. The most common sunscreens on the market contain chemical filters. These Products typically include a combination of two to six of these active ingredients. Oxybenzone, avobenzone, octosalate, octocrylene, homeosalate, and octinooxate. Mineral sunscreens use zinc oxide and or titanium oxide. A handful of products combine zinc oxide with chemical filters. Uh, Active ingredient toxicity. This table outlines human exposure and toxicity for the nine FDA-approved sunscreen chemicals. We ask these questions. Will a chemical penetrate the skin and reach living tissues? Will it disrupt the hormone system? Will it affect the reproductive and thyroid systems? And in the case of fetal or childhood exposure, 
permanently alter reproductive development or behavior? Can it cause a skin allergy? What if inhaled? Other toxicity concerns. So I'll link to the uh, the chart, but here's the uh, writing. Chemical sunscreens. Nearly every chemical sunscreen in the United States contains avobenzone because it is the best available agent for filtering skin-damaging UV rays. However, avobenzone may alone may break down. When exposed to sunlight, it must be stabilized with other chemicals such as octocrylene. Laboratory studies of several sunscreen chemicals indicate they mimic hormones and disrupt the hormone system. Some research on animals suggests that oxybenzone and other sunscreen chemicals can be toxic to reproductive systems or interfere with normal development. Another sunscreen chemical, 4-methylbenzidylcamophore, used in Europe, is also a hormone disruptor. Experts caution that unintentional exposure and toxicity of active ingredients erodes the benefits of sunscreen. But most conclude that more sensitive tests are needed to determine whether sunscreen chemicals pose risks to sunscreen users. Generally, chemical sunscreens deserve special scrutiny because most are known to permeate the skin to some degree. Two European studies have also detected sunscreen chemicals in mother's milk, indicating the developed fetus, developing fetus and newborns may be exposed to those substances. A 2010 study at the University of Zurich found at least one sunscreen chemical in 85% of milk samples. The most problematic of sunscreen chemicals used in the U.S. is oxybenzone, found in nearly every chemical sunscreen. EWG recommends that consumers avoid this chemical because it can penetrate the skin, cause allergic skin reactions, and may disrupt hormones. Preliminary investigations of human populations suggest a link between higher concentrations of oxybenzone and its metabolites in the body and increased risk of endometriosis and low birth weight in daughters. The Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have detected oxybenzone in more than 96% of the American population based on a representative sampling of more than 25 children and adults. Researchers found higher concentrations of oxybenzone in samples collected from participants during the summer months and concluded that sunscreen use may explain the seasonal difference. So good news is this is stuff that's in your control now that you know about it, so don't worry too much. Mineral sunscreens. Mineral sunscreens made with zinc oxide and titanium oxide, usually in the form of nanoparticles. Mineral sunscreens usually rate better than chemical sunscreens for safety in our database. However, it is important that manufacturers use forms of minerals that are coated with inert chemicals to reduce photoactivity. If they don't, users could suffer skin damage. To date, no such problems have been reported. The FDA should set guidelines and place restrictions on zinc and titanium sunscreens to minimize the risk to sunscreen users and maximize the product's sun protection. Our detailed analysis on sunscreens is also available. New sunscreen chemicals. New sunscreen chemicals are on the horizon. Meroxol SX and Meroxol SL, developed by French company La Roche, and Tinosorb S and Tinosorb N, developed by a German B 
PASF are promising UVA filters. The FDA is considering the manufacturer's application to market them in the U.S. The FDA is also considering approval of another European sunscreen ingredient for methyl benzidine camphorphore, but it may disrupt the hormone system. Europe recently deemed another sunscreen chemical and hormone disruptor three benzidine camphorphore to be unsafe in sunscreens. EWG recommends the FDA investigate. So that that's the, I'll link to that, and, and they're coming out their 2015 uh, spring guide to sunscreen. I'm sure it'll be getting a lot of press, uh, but that's over at the Environmental Working Group EWG.org. So one thing that was interesting to me was that Marjorie was dealing with these orphans and the fact that uh, they were war orphans, most of the kids. And I was like, well, remember the world? We had these world wars. I don't know if you guys heard about them. The world was at war. A lot of people lost their lives. So I was like, well, I don't really know that much about world war orphans. I found this wonderful article over at jewishmag.org. And it happens to be in the Bronx, which, of course, uh, it's called Children of War. It's by Renate G. Justin. I don't see a date, um, but I'm going to read a little bit of it here. A summer camp in the Bronx next to the elevated? Hardly. It is a camp, a camp for orphaned Euro- European refugee children brought to the United States in 1946. At the end of World War II, after the Allies liberated the inmates of concentration camps in Germany, the survivors in the compound had to stay inside the barbed wire fences. The camps were used for displaced persons by coalition forces. The displaced persons were inadequately housed, nourished, and clothed. They were not permitted by the army administrators to communicate with the world outside these camps. In June of 1945, President Truman asked Earl G. Harrison, the commissioner of immigration, to report to him about the condition of displaced persons incarcerated in Europe. It was a Harrison report that painted the inhuman and unacceptable conditions in the camps, which moved President Truman in December of 45 to issue his directive on displaced Persians. In this document, Truman states, to the extent that our present immigration laws permit, everything possible should be done at once to facilitate the entrance of some of these displaced Persians and refugees in the United States. Truman's effort was directed at reestablishing consulates in Germany to issue, issue visas, filling all the immigration quotas, preferably with orphans, and closing the camps for orphaned children in the American zone of Germany. Written in the directive was that children did not have to have individual sponsors in the United States, but could be sponsored by charitable organizations who would have to pay for their visas, their tickets, and guarantee they would not become public charges once they came to America. It took the patience and know-how of the United States Committee for the Care of European Children to surmount the red tape and obtain visas for children who were supposed to be bring their birth certificates to the consulate and who did not even remember their name or dis- or place of birth. The first group of 67 young war victims left Europe in May 1946 for the U.S. Eventually, under the 1945 Truman Directive, which was enforced for two and a half years, 1,387 children came to America. I was part of the staff that welcomed the International Convent- Contingent of Children to a large abandoned YMCA building in the hot summer of 1946. Our receiving center in the Bronx was a dark, multi-story 
was a dark, multi-storied structure, an absolute fire trap with many small rooms and few bathrooms. Not a tree or bush was in sight from the front stoop. We were surrounded by asphalt. Imagine walking up in the Tower of Babel. Every, imagine waking up in the Tower of Babel every morning. Our children came from Finland, Lithuania, Poland, Germany, and many other countries. They did not understand each other, nor did we, the staff, understand them. Their religious background was as varied as their national religion, but a few spoke Yiddish. Even that language was of little help since each region of the world where it is spoken has developed a different, distinct dialect. We use hands, feet, facial grimaces to get our messages across the language barrier. We played Jacob's Ladder, a string game played by children all over the world to establish a common ground with the young people. The campers span the ages of 1 to officially 18, Although we knew some of the boys were older, we were able to help disguise a chronological age to qualify for a United States visa. Our youngest child, found by a naked in the field by a U.S. soldier, was estimated between one and two years old. She came to us nameless, and we had a naming party for her. A few days after she arrived, we gave her the name Ruth, our director's name. The children arrived in waves, groups of 20 to 40 at a time. We were not forewarned that we would have a baby in our midst. We had no crib, no diapers. We were not prepared. It was unbelievably hot that summer, and even at night the steamy heat did not rise from among the tall buildings that surrounded us. All of our neighbors hung out their open windows at night, calling to each other from floor to floor. I went out on the street and asked one neighbor, Do you know anyone who has a baby crib they're not using? The message was passed from apartment to apartment via the open window internet. Before long, I owned a well-used fancy metal crib with mattress and blanket. My next stop was a corner store, which stayed open since no one could sleep and customers shopped late at night. I was able to buy a bottle and a binky, some diaper pins and powder, all at a discount. Proudly, I returned to bathe, feed, and sing to Ruth. It was hard for her to fall asleep in her new surroundings amongst the strangers, and she did not like her crib. I spent many hours cleaning and scrubbing the metal crib and its flowery, flowery decorations with a toothbrush, wishing that w Ruth could sleep in a plain wooden crib. Ruth and I bonded a few days after her arrival, and she started to snuggle with me, smile, when I picked her up after a nap. But she could not stay with me. She had to travel on. Our mandate was we were to find homes for the children. In order of preference, the home was to be with relatives in a foster home or in a place in which a young person could live if not legally adopted. This was not an easy assignment. Various agencies helped us to accomplish this directive. Included in my very daily routine was to teach English to the recent arrivals. I will never again have students so eager to learn to master the language of their newly adopted country. The day we visited a bookstore in Manhattan and bought dictionaries in every available language was a fiesta. At least some of us com could communicate now. It was also the beginning of storytelling. The youngsters started to share their past experiences with me. So so there's a lot more of this here, and I'll link to it. And it's like a, you, you could see it as, as a heartbreaking story, but just like, Mar I mean, this is a fiction, Marjorie reaching out to these orphans on Game of Thrones, but this is real. Like these people were like, let's take care of these children all the way on the other side of the world. Uh, this person that wrote this article, you know, this is what they did. So there, there's still, like, a, if anything, this shouldn't shake any of your faith in humanity. It should it should uh, uh, ignite it because it's like the, it, there, there are people out there that care. 
enough to say, hey, let's help these people. These people are suffering. Let's figure out a way to help them out. So so I don't know. If you take anything away from it, take, take that away. Thanks. Hello, hello, hello. This is Lord Tommen, King, you know, Tommen, your buddy Tommen, coming back to you where, right where we left off, believe it, almost, well, we Serpent said, start where you left off. And, well, you might say, who's Tommen, who's Serpent's? Well, two best friends, that's what I could tell you, two best friends, the best of friends, in the, the great book of friendship, leather-bound, that every friend should have to read, you will see the, the greatest friends ever known is a boy named Tommen, and his best friend Sir Pounce the Cat, the bravest cat of all the kingdoms of Westeros, and of the, you know, of all legends of cats and friendship, it is Sir Pounce and his best friend Tommen. But you might say, well, what are you, why are you here, why are you talking? Well, Sir Pounce and I had, had taken on a quest. Well, Sir Pounce had uh, taken on a quest, and then he said, hey, Tommen, help me out and do some things for this boy named Anan, who he was a, he was a, uh, no, he was not a milkmaid. He was a stable boy, and then he, uh, well, I just feel so strange telling you, I'm a bit distracted trying to tell you this story. And Sir Pounce said, just tell the story, Tommen, and then let the people decide for themselves. But so uh, he was a stable boy, and then there was a milkmaid, lovely, lovely milkmaid, who loved to give milk to Sir Pounce. And she was, uh, she went out to pasture, they said, or went to a farm. She went to live on a farm far away, Mother said. Like many of the people who, you know, they if you if your if your head gets lost or put on a pike. They say, how did they put, mother, how did they put those back on? What do you do without your head? How do you? And she said, well, you go live on a farm far away, Tom, and that's what happens. You. And then she would say many things to herself, but so I couldn't hear. I said, what is that, mother? I cannot understand what you said after live on a farm far away. Something about the boy. What do you, you know? And she said, oh, anyway, this, uh, so the milkmaid, they said she was sent on a farm, but she did not want to go live on a farm. The mil- they said the, the stable boy made her go away because he was angry or something. But so the pound said, no, 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 Joff did this. The stable boy is innocent. He is jealous of the stable boy. We must set things right. And so we looked into it. We said, well, we have a little bit of proof because of the timing. And then I made a couple speeches and then we said, trial, they said, oh, no, this is the, this is the, I'm the king, Joff said. I don't, you know, I need to protect my people from his charm and uh, his dong. I still don't know to say my wife is never the same. And all of those things, so they said, and then I said, well, let's do trial by combat then, knowing that, uh, not knowing what I just said, I, I've heard that in many of the the tales the uh, septa used to tell me. They would say, "I choose trial by combat," and I said, and then they said, explained it to me that he would have to fight the hound, and he cried and cried, and I said, "Well, let's get you out of here." So we pulled him out of the because uh, his dungeon was happened to be in the. They took me, you know, they took away my room and they put me in this room that was over the dungeon so that I could not get out of my room. 
but they didn't realize, I guess, that there's a hole in my room. That's how I met the stable. He said, anyway, let's get to the story. Good news, bad news. That's what the mother is about. Anyway, so he was, I said, I climb out of the toilet. You have to fight the hound tomorrow. Maybe you should just run away. Uh, you know, instead of fighting the hound, because I know even, you know, even you could not beat him. And he said, well, that's a pretty good idea. And I said, otherwise, you, or you could just hide under my bed, live under my bed forever. Because it'd probably be hard to get out of the castle. Even if you do, they'll get you. So just, I said, I'll give you some crumbs. You could eat some of Sabounce's food. So then the night came. I had a, he, I said, well, stay, spend the night under my bed, you know. And he said, I said, good night. And he said, it's cold here. How about a blanket? I said, oh, no. Uh, you know, you have to. I don't, don't, uh, I don't know what I'm going to tell them. I, I guess I say I had a fit or accident, but I cannot give you any more. Because they'll say, where are your blankets? And I say, under my bed. And then they'll look. So I'm protecting you uh, by staying warm and you. And he said, okay, well, could you tell? And then he said, oh, Tom, and I'm a bit nervous about tomorrow and my escape and or living under your bed forever. Tell me there's going to be a better end for this stable boy than this. Tell me a story with a good ending for me. And I said, well, living under the bed, what if you had a, what if there's a mouse? Well, Sipant would get a mouse. I was going to say you could have a mouse that's a best friend. The stable boy and Mousy the Mouse, two of, you know, not the greatest friends the world's ever known, but, you know, pretty good friends. They also, most importantly, they know Tom and Sir Pounce, the stable boy and his mouse. And he was quiet for a while, I don't know, and he was weeping. He said, please tell me, Tom, and you have a better idea. And I said, well, I do have an idea, it's crazy. Believe me, I, I know. I said, uh, I was thinking about it. And Sapounce had been gone for a while. I said, maybe Sapounce has got some plan. And they said, well, I was thinking maybe Sapounce could fight the hound on your behalf. Uh, you know, he's the bravest cat the world's ever known. And then, you know, he's very, I think he could take the hound. He, we'd have to ask him, Sapounce, would you be the champion of the stable boy? He's it for justice. And I said, I think that's that might be the idea. And then there was a knock at my chamber door, and it was mother. And I said, well, she said, what were you talking to, Tom, and what were you talking about? And I said, oh, nothing, mother, nothing at all. Just here under my bed, with, you know, with my sheets, perfectly lying. And she said, well, she's like, do you mind if I sit with you, Tom? And and, and, and then I noticed Sir Pounce was with mother. He, he pounced in behind mother and pounced onto the bed and and I said, well, that's weird, Mother and Sir Pounce together. And Mother felt my head, and she said, are you okay, Tom, and are you well? I'm worried for you. And I became worried for me then because I said, well, does Mother know something? Well, why is Mother being so nice? Many conflicting feelings I had. That's a new thing I learned since the stable boy said he's feeling conf- he was feeling. Anyway, I'll tell you that in a minute. So... Mother said, I said, no, Mother, I said, she said, you were acting very strange today at the trial. My my boy is growing up, I suppose, making speeches to the people, and she had laughed. And it was not a mean laugh, it was a strange girl-like laugh. I said, what was this? I am not familiar with this motion. 
mother is having. And then she, she went from laughing like a girl to crying a little bit. She said, oh, oh, and she held her hands to her lips. And I said, mother, are you, are you not well? And she said, she said, waved me away. She said, it's nothing, Tom, it's nothing. And she said, what are you planning for this car trial by combat for this stable boy? And I said, I'm not planning anything, mother. My voice get very high, I think, and, and, uh, she took a sigh, and then so she she petted Sir Pounce. And normally that would not be. I said, well, that's strange. Sir Pounce let my mother pet him. And she said, Tom, and she goes, yeah, I'm your mother. And I know you, you are a good boy, and I do love you despite the fact that I have to teach you so many things. And I'm trying to mold you into something, and you are very hard clay to work with. And I just, I said, well, I don't know, what what does she mean? I'm made of clay. I thought I had men, I thought we were skin and bone, but I did not say that aloud for mother. I said, and she said, I know, I have a feeling you're planning on having Sir Pounce fight this, uh, the hound tomorrow. Is that true? And I said, well, that's a wonderful idea, Mother. I'm so glad you thought of it. As a matter of fact, Sir Pounce, what do you think? And Sir Pounce looked at me, and Mother says, Tom and Sir Pounce and I have been talking. And I was like, I said, Sir Pounce talking to you? As far as I knew... Uh, this is all in my head. I did not say this a lot. I said, was it a Pounce talking to someone I know? I did not have never heard of this. And she said, so Pounce is worried about you too, Tom, and for you need to understand. One one thing is, is your cat is named Sir Pounce, correct? Not just Pounce, right? right? And I said, well, I, I named him Sir Pounce, yes, mother. And she's like, why did you name him Sir Pounce, Tom? And I said, well... He is the uh, best friend. He's a, the, the knight of friendship, mother. He is the uh, defender of friends, the defi- the greatest friend a cat has ever known. And I well, I don't know, mother. I'm confused about these questioning. And she said, well, Sir Pounce is like a knight. Correct, Tom? And as royal as a knight. And I, I said, yes, mother. And, and, and she said, and are you a royal, a young royal? And I said, I suppose I am, mother. I'm Sir Tommen. I, I write to her. I'm my Lord Tommen. I, and she says she laughed again like a girl. I said, what I'm doing? What am I doing? My mother is being, I'm making my mother happy. I think, and I thought she was going to be cross with me. And she said, well, Sir Pounce and I are just so worried because, you know, the stable boy, he is not a knight. Is he? Is he a Sir Stable Boy, Tommen? And I said, no, Mother, I do not believe he is. And she said, do you know the difference between a royal person and a regular person? And I said, well, they smell, they, they do not smell of soap. And she again laughed. I said, well, Mother, I said, I'm, and I said, well, this is nice. Mother's laughing with me, not laughing at me. I feel that. She was not ashamed of me at that moment, and she said, well, that's a very good answer, my son. And she's like, I need to protect you above all things, Tom, and above all things. Even when I want to just bring you a room where you can go to the bathroom wherever you want, I have to keep you safe because you are my little boy. 
And I was, she said, now, you are a royal boy. Sir Pounce is a royal cat, and I am, a, you know, a woman that has been queen and now is a mother of the king, so I have, we have certain responsibilities. And that sets us apart from people like the stable boy. Do you understand? I said, no, mother. And she said, well, because you smell of soap, Tom, and some, most of the time, right? And I said, well, except when I have an accident or such things. And she, we both laughed at it and I, because I was joking and telling the truth. And she said, so this, uh, she said, you know, Sir Pounce came to me and he said, well, I, I love justice so much, but I've heard this talk. I've heard talk about, uh, you know, the streets and, 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 and upheaval. And Sir Pounce was so worried that, you know, if this stable boy, what if Sir Pounce fought the hound, Tommy, and he beat the hound? And I said, oh, yeah, that would probably happen, Mother. The Sir Pounce is the, you know, so the hound is very tough, but Sir Pounce is tougher, smarter, quicker. And Mother patted him, and she said, oh, yes, he is, but he is also smarter than the hound. And... They call him Sir, Sir, whatever is a sand or Sir Hound, but he is just like the stable boy in some sense. And if if Sir Pounce was to defeat the Hound or the stable boy was to run away, it would embarrass our King Joffrey, and it would make him look weak, Tommen. And I have to protect you, and the king's duty is to keep the people to protect the king and the way. It's it's complicated, Tommy, but I need to keep you safe. And I kind of need to keep Joff safe and help him keep you and all the other people safe. And if the Pounce was to beat the Hound, people might say, well, we don't want you living. We want to live in that castle, not Joff and Tom and, and his mother and not Pounce. We'll, we'll just take them out and we'll put them on a farm far, far away, a farm with no food, with no blankets like these lovely blankets and maybe we will take Sir Pounce somewhere and keep him from Tom and I said oh no 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 we are best friends mother that cannot happen and she said exactly and that's why Sir Pounce has said told me you know that this is just not a good idea helping the stable boy run away fighting the hound Tom and these are not the things we do we you know we have to be an example of uh, for the people, and I have to protect my boy, my sweet Tom and boy, and your best friend, you know, needs to be near you so you can stay best friends in your in our castle in the Red Keep where we belong, Tom and we belong here. Joff belongs in the throne until you know we we need to be in control. We're Lannisters. We're born to rule. And so, uh, do you understand now, Tom? And I want you to be safe, and I want you to be with your best friend. And you're the, I know, Sir Pounce has told me, what a great friend you are. And I cannot let these people just separate you. And I said, well, I, I think I understand, Mother. And I said, I think I understand. And while I said that, I was pointing down. I was pointing down under my bed, I, I, and I, and Mother smiled. She already knew, and then she had that look on her face. But it, it was a look that said, uh, "Good boy, Tom," and 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 get hit, get get him. And then next thing you know, Mother said, "Sir Ma- oh, what is his name? Sir Marin." And then the door opened, 
And some Marin came in with other gold cloaks, and they reached under the bed, and they dragged the uh, stable boy. And, uh, you know, Mother said, put his head on a pike. That's the uh, stable boy I like. And she, well, she said, and then she said, well, wait a second. I'll need to speak with him in his, about his, uh, put him in my chamber, as a matter of fact, so I could, uh, you know, talk to the boy for a little bit first. And then Mother, she had a glean of sweat suddenly on her face and her uh, her neck. And I said, Mother, you are you well? And she said, whoa, I'm about to be, Tom. And, you know, we'll see. Is the stable boy, maybe it's, and they were holding the stable boy. He said, why, Tom, and why? This is not the end. And uh, why? And I, Mother said, well, you, she said, you could do your talking with me, the stable boy, and take him to my chamber. And then he, he, I said, Mother, did I do something wrong? And Sir Pounce jumped in my lap and licked my face. And I said, well, I must not have. And Mother said, yes, yeah, so let, let the people not decide for themselves. I think that's what she said. I, I think yeah, it's like uh, the people cannot decide for themselves, Tom, and we must decide for them. And maybe I asked her a question. I cannot remember, but... It, and she said, all is well now. And then Mother left, and Sir Pounce was so happy. And I think I said, he said to me, justice is done. This is the way justice works, Tom, and it, it may be confusing to you. But this is, and I, you know, he said, I got carried away without knowing the ramifications of, you know, I thought this would go smoother. And he said, but this was too many. He said, you know, justice is done. Things are as they should be. And, you know, I still got a good job, but I'll get in my own way. And I said, well, this is wonderful, Sir Pounce. We are together. No one will separate two best friends. Mother was so nice tonight. And I said, well, this is all as well. And the stable boy is going to go on that farm with Ned Stark, probably. So that should be, he He is a nice man, too, without his, I don't know if they send his head after, I don't know. But anyway, so that, that is the end of our tale of justice done, justice is done. As Sir Pound said, things are as they should be. We have decided for the people and, uh, you know, something, something or other. The end. Thank you for listening to me and my best friend, Sir Pounce. Crone, sweet, sweet Crone, Miller Smith, Barky, Jester, it's me, uh, praying in for, you know, fresh start city here. No, you know, you're the gods I've been, you know, uh, that are real to me, not fiction at all, not fan fiction, not fantasy fiction, not mythological fiction, but 100%. You, uh, you know, faithfulness to you, gods. I'm praying in, you know, on behalf because I don't, you know, I don't know what to say. It's kind of like I woke up and uh, cut off from Westeros by my own, you know, by my own choice, probably guided by you guys. So I'm trying to think, like, how should we start this new life together? which is pretty much the same as the old life, except I'm not, you know, having adventures in an alternative universe, which was pretty sweet. But, you know, I have you guys to lean on, so I'm not going to just say, oh, drudgery, oh, whoa, whoa, so the drudgery. You know, I think that's, you know, would be disrespectful to everybody involved.
mostly myself, but, you know, I just hope we keep, you know, show our respect to George R. R. Martin. We're pushing the envelope because we got to finish up Tom and Story. And then I'll try to pull, I, I don't know, I haven't figured out what I'll do about Tom and then impound. But, but anyway, guys, I was thinking, you know, maybe it's time for like an orientation, a couple, a couple uh, orientation sessions because here we are. And you guys really, you guys know I haven't, this, this is Earth, planet Earth, they call it. I'm going to go on the assumption like, ooh, I don't know what to do. I can't because I'm not a scientist or a historian or knowledgeable person. But, you know, I'm going to kind of pretend like this isn't like Ansel, like, oh, you guys, you don't know nothing about the, you know, Earth world. Uh, you might have heard Barky that Earth Girls are easy, but that's just a movie title. So don't go, uh, you know, the people we were, it's different than Westeros. That's, they call that the Middle Ages, the attitudes there. But I'll teach you all that, God's orientation. I was thinking, like, where should we start? Um, which that's, you know, wow, where do we start? Luckily, you guys are only here by, you know, prayer broadcast. I think that's how like, I'm brought. It's like a two. I'm assuming it's like a two-way system. Like you guys that got a spy satellite type thing going in my brain. So you're seeing every, or maybe well, I guess it'd be you could see me from inside and out. Who knows, gods? But I, you know, all I know is I, you know, you guys are the best, and I'm not just because I don't. Uh, just because there's no more fan fiction doesn't mean I can't be your number one fan of you guys because uh, I'm not going to have any Westeros-related prayers anymore except for those boots, but those are, you know, we could get those Earth boots. Anyway, Earth, Earth. So we're planet. Uh, presumably Westeros you, you all rule over. Yeah, well, I guess I shouldn't be talking about it, but it's like, is that just a continent or a couple of continents? Is there more to to that planet that Westeros was on that we don't know about? Or is that the only continent? Because here on Earth, oh, man, I wish I had some geologists here or a geographer, probably a geographer, cartographer maybe. Those are all those are all jobs, gods, uh, for people that go to school for a long time, and then they get a job that doesn't. You know, they say, "Well, I love maps," and good thing I don't love spending money. I love these sweaters that I've had for thirty years. So, you know, I'm a cartographer. You know, some cartographers are making boatloads with, you know, digital map GIS stuff, but. Not all, you know, not the good ones that we're praying about right now. But so we got all the continents, guys, are big land masses. That I can tell you. We got, a, let's see, we got the North American one. That's the one that, you know, dominates the, uh, you know, Braggadocia continent, I'd say. So Canadians are pretty modest. And then you got South America. That's like... Um, most beautiful continent, maybe. I, I mean, that's my opinion. Uh, I've never been there. I'm just, you know, making us, you know, you know, a, a play on your behalf, God. So all the people of South America, how great they are. I guess so. You got that. Then you got. Then you got. Um, uh, I don't know. Antarctica, I think, is one. A green Greenland continent. I'm not sure, guys. That's a big landmass, though. At least as far as I know. Then you have Europe, 
I think that's, I don't know if that's a continent or just a thing, because then you have Asia, but that's where I said they seem like they're connected. Um, you have Africa, which is big, and, um, you know, a lot of cartographers will tell you that it's been disrespected as far as map making goes, but now people are starting to get their act together and, you know, give Africa the size of the planet it deserves. And respect, because that's where, as you just you know, guys, that's where us humans started out in Africa. First humans started there, um, and then they went over some land bridges or something, ice bridges. But I don't know. I don't know. I just know that's where the, the heart of humanity, I would say, is Africa, big, big continent. Australia, if they're not, if you know, if if... If the, I consider it a continent, even if other people don't, but I would say that's a sweet continent. And you got New Zealand and stuff in there. Sometimes you'll call or her, her to call like Oceana. I think those are people, you know, there's Atlantis, which I can't cover right now. That's a continent that's sunk. Could have been a part of Australia, though. Uh, Oz, I hear they say about that, too. But Australia's sweet, gods. I have not been there. Uh, but uh, people that are great, at least in my book, and I would like to check it out one day. Barrier Reef's there. They got the outback, outback. They got a you know, beautiful, beautiful country. And then you got the you know other countries that are close, New Zealand. And hmm, there's another one, I'm sorry. But, you know, New Zealand, Australia, and... Uh, hmm. Yeah, probably there's others there. So you have a Europe, Asia. Not sure if there's one continent or two. Hmm. I feel like I'm missing something though. But you know, so you got like these big countries again. I think uh, most of the maps I've seen, where it depends on who's making the maps. Just like in Westeros, probably gods. You got, but you guys know. Uh, once you know, I just gotta give you the basic info. You can download the rest with your uh, minds. So that's Earth. We got a bunch of continents. Um, big, but pretty big compared to Westeros, as far as I could tell. Uh, like, like you'd say, well, is North America and South America like Westeros? And be like, well, that would take a hell of a lot of time, I think, to get from North America to South America. More than a couple seasons, maybe. But I don't know, God. So that's the continents. I'm wasting our time, though. Uh, you know, I'm human. As far as people go, uh, at least where I live is more a little more diverse than Westeros um, culturally, uh, faith-wise. Though you guys have, like, maybe five faiths there. Uh, but, I don't, you know, we don't want to talk politics when we're talking religion. I don't know where to start. I was thinking, um, you know, what would be nice, gods, is uh, maybe we should start in the entertainment business because, uh, you know, Barky, I've been telling you about those movies. I don't know when, um, if, uh, uh, what do you call it, Guardians of the Galaxy is out on DVD, but maybe you could watch, like, maybe I could go watch a movie and you guys could watch it through my head uh, while I'm watching it. If you guys need me to comment, maybe I'll do that for you, guys. I don't know. Um so I'm trying to think. We got north, south, east, and west. I think they had that in Westeros. You guys are up. Uh, you guys, I don't know if it, what the God situation is in here because we got a long history. 
And so I don't like. I'm going to keep you guys covert gods, covert gods. Yeah, you'll be my covert gods. I'll keep you in my heart. I'll hide my love away, as uh, the Beatles once sang. Beatles, you know, you have in Westeros. You guys have Beatles, but Beatles are also a band. The Beatles, they called them. They're from uh, London, England, which is a island off of your you know coast of Europe. Uh, you know. A lot of stuff there, good people there, great, great podcast supporters in the UK. They call it United Kingdom. England, just one thing. Then you got Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and uh, I think that's it. Scotland, I said, Ireland, Wales, and uh, England. Uh, so, uh, so that's uh, UK. I don't want to go over all the countries, guys, because that's just going to be embarrassing. And plus, I don't, you know. Uh, so movies, oh, movie. What's a movie? You might be asking. Now in Westeros, you got storytellers, you got poets, you got music. Now, when you you hear a story, guys, like that guy Serial, who was telling all those great stories last season, when during a fantasy, my fantasy fiction phase. He, uh, you know, you were creating something in your mind, presumably, where you're like watching the story unfold. You're hearing them. For for us here, you know, that takes a lot of work and imagination. So to cut out that, and also give a more visceral impact, and you'd be like, well, I couldn't even imagine that. Uh, they created these things called movies, which are moving pictures that you see outside of your head on a screen, typically. Well, typically, always, I'd say a big screen to a medium screen to a small screen to nowadays even a tiny screen, ideally seen in a big screen. So I'd like to invite you, gods, to see a movie with me if you would be my guest. Now, no, uh, this is, I don't know how they do in Westeros when you ask someone to do something. It's just straight friendship. It's just, you know, we're going as friends. Uh, You know, because a lot of times you go to the movie, it's like you're trying to... uh, Crone, can you cover your ears for like about, give me four minutes. Um, you know, guys, you, you say you go to the movies and you get stirred up. Uh, well, we're already probably stirred up. You say, oh, well, my day will have an emotional journey. And maybe that'll, uh, you know, entice for a makeout. You know, Barky, I don't know how trees handle it, especially, you know, animated trees. Oh, animation's a whole different word here, too. But anyway, guys, guys um, if you're taking on human form, check out movie if you're on a date. And then you, maybe no hold off on any dates. How about that, guys? Because you should learn the cultures here uh, and how to respect people. The respecting level is different here. The class structure is much more... Um, how is it different uh, it's more subtle here. Uh, you know, you get instead of like having, you usually get a letter. If instead of like getting, um, you know, trial like with Ned Stark, and they say blah blah blah, or like if you're some somebody from um, Flea Bottom, they say they give you a letter instead of you know public humiliation. They say, hey, you're fired. Hey, you're evicted. Uh, you know, oh, we use these laws to ruin your life. Uh, you know, it's a tax, whatever. I didn't want to make it too political, gods. Um, so no dates for now. Okay, Crone, I didn't even say anything. You didn't take your hands off your ears. I didn't say anything good. 
But how about we start there, guys? I like to, uh, this is probably like the best way to do it is say, uh, let me take you to something that's a dip, very earth. You know, we, you guys don't have it in Westeros. And maybe it'll overwhelm your systems and blow your minds, but maybe it'll do it in a good way. I'm not sure if we should start with Guardians of the Galaxy or Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings might confuse you, Barky, and then you'll try to fight the screen because you might not realize it's real because that's too close to Westeros. So I'll think of a movie, gods, and we'll check that out. Maybe a comedy. I don't know what you guys would even understand. But, you know, I'll think about that. So that's it. That orienta- I guess I'll work on the next orientation points because there's a lot of stuff uh, to cover. So you guys should just, well, you guys are in my head to just kick back up there and uh, God, God's wherever you are, I don't know. And just, you know, observe, you know, take it all in. Uh, do not go on any dates. Probably not, don't have any contact with humans or animal, anything, just stay up there. Uh, or if you do, take on some form and do it not, you know, do it in another continent away from me. So I don't, I can't deal with any repercussions with you guys, you know, with your adventures. All right. So let's say, guys, I don't know. I'm trying to reorientate you and I got to reorientate myself to this new life. What do I want from this life now that I can't uh, well, I wasn't really good. I was trying to get those boots in Westeros, get with the Maiden, which is still, you know, Maiden. You know, you, what do you think uh, of Earth? Continents, huh? Continent, continental drift, I think they say sometimes. But, you know, other than that, I was just trying to undo the mess I was making, which is kind of what I do here. Uh, but it's less dramatic, it's more boring day-to-day undoing of a mess instead of like once a week with, uh, you know, jokes. It's more once a day, every minute of every day without jokes. Um, anyway, guys, that's me. I'm here. Uh, you're here, I guess, now and there, which is funny, but I'm not praying to there. The old place, you know, where, where that's not my universe. I don't, you know, so I'm staying out out of respect and not respect, not ironic respect, straight respect, you know. But I, you know, I choose my choose my gods, so I've chosen. And you know, like it or not, gods, I'm your servant. <laughs> like it or not, so you know, you you got me. You're stuck with me. So I'll be here. I'll be here for sure, gods. Miller Smith, Barky, Jester Crone, sweet sweet Crone. Good night.